Well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm Susan Basterfield in Wellington, New Zealand, and I'm thrilled once again on behalf of Connectal to be hosting a conversation with some of the, uh, in my mind, some of my favorite humans, but also the foremost practitioners of self-management without dogma in the world. So without further ado, I'd love uh, to ask our guests to introduce themselves and start by answering the question, what uh, drew you to this particular topic, self-management without the dogma? Maybe we'll start with you, Lisa. So hi, um, my name's Lisa Gill. Um, I'm based in Barcelona and I'm kind of working with teams who are interested in being self-managing, uh, either they're already self-managing or they're um, looking to uh, sort of hone their self-management skills. And for me, the interest in this topic is um, I am finding myself uh, less and less interested in the structure and process and framework part of self-managing organizations. And the, I guess the dogma associated with that uh, and more interested in what are the, what I'm calling sort of human skills that we need to learn and unlearn when we're working together as a team um, in a self-managing way. Uh, what are those skills and how can we kind of learn them? And that is much less about dogma and more about going with the people that you have at that moment, like going with the skills and the talents and the personalities that you have um, and starting from there and co-creating frameworks uh, on the basis of developing those skills. So um, that's kind of my interest in the topic. Thanks, Lisa. Mr. Kirkpatrick. Great, thanks, Susan. Uh, great to be here. My name is Doug Kirkpatrick. Um, partner in New Focus Strategic Group, and I spend a lot of time writing uh, blogs and books, um, spend a lot of time speaking, and also working directly with organizations on self-management initiatives. Um, like Lisa, I'm very fascinated about the actions, behaviors, characteristics of effective self-managers and organizations. Um, I do think the processes and structures have, have something to do with self-management, but um, for me, self-management is very much about managing complexity with simplicity. Um, business uh, is complex enough without creating organizational systems and mechanical uh, systems that are overly complex in addition to the underlying complexity of the business itself. So I'm about managing complexity with simplicity to the degree that's possible. Thanks, Doug. Helen. Hi, I'm Helen Sanderson from the UK. I've been involved in being the founder of Wellbeing Teams, which are small self-managed teams inspired by Birdsorg. However, we decided to um, use some of the elements of holacracy as we've grown and developed. Because after reading Lalu's book, I moved from um, being a large um, training consultancy team to becoming self-managed and work with you, Susan, to become holacracy practitioners to find a way of doing that. And some of holacracy we've continued to embrace and some we haven't. And I'm, I'm interested about getting other people's views on that and sharing some of what we've experienced. Thanks, Helen. And uh, Brian from Google. My name is Brian Haney. I'm uh, coming from Seattle right now. Um, and my interest in this space came from, uh, I'm on the cloud platform support team at Google. Um, the company directory says I'm a program manager, but I spend most of my time uh, as a team dev consultant. Uh, and our, our motto is to, um, to help teams get unstuck and accelerate. Um, I got interested in this space uh, uh, um, about two years ago. My, my, the cloud platform support team experimented for, with Holacracy for about three months. Uh, and then uh, fell victim to a, uh, a reorganization of our parent team. So our ratifying authority got uh, tasked to go start a new team and our, the new director that replaced him um, didn't quite understand what we were trying to accomplish and, and, and it sounded like uh, we weren't being very effective uh, in, in our Holacracy implementation, which we were you know, just three months into it, which is, that's kind of the most challenging part. Um, and so he pulled the plug on it, and I was deeply emotionally invested in the success of 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 of, uh, of self management on my team. And I was, 
as a program manager, I was I was uh, a dry, I was managing the Holacracy One coaching contract and, and a vendor contract, and I, so I was deeply invested in in the success of Holacracy. I felt like like when he pulled the plug on it, he killed my children. And so uh, after I managed to roll out of bed again, um, the, I uh, did a, a brief postmortem analysis of what we learned from this experience and came to realize that um, holacracy, um, it comes as a monolithic structure to implement. And, and I, I, I suspect it works just fine in a, in a highly dysfunctional organization, but Google is far from dysfunctional. Uh, and so there was a lot of friction bet, uh, uh, in the moving parts between Holacracy and our, our effective, our already effective uh, uh, Google culture. And, and so I, um, as I learned more, I got more feedback from, from my colleagues, came to realize that the, um, there were the ways that, that it doesn't have to be a, a, a monolith. You can, you can deconstruct Holacracy and then reconstruct it in, in a different sequence, implement it in phases, and, and find more resonance with, with the existing culture. And so uh, I'm trying, right now I'm, I'm in the middle of a rough draft of a book to try and capture that wisdom. Um, and I'm uh, uh, growing my skills on, uh, in the Team Dev Consulting Group. And, um, trying to partner with, with, with uh, Google Teams that want to experiment with, with self-management, and we'll see where this goes. Lovely, thanks, uh, Brian. So again, I'm Susan Basterfield um, in New Zealand. I do my work from within the Entrepreneurs Collective in Spiral, and I've been working for the past three and a half years or so uh, with organizations all around the world, um, either directly uh, helping founders, leaders, and teams uh, transition to something more participatory or equally through the Leadwise Practical Self-Management Intensive helping individuals understand um, uh, both I guess the theory uh, behind some of the elements of high-functioning self-managing organizations but having the practical experience of doing that uh, in teams and within the cohort and uh, when Mara and I were talking about uh, potential topics for this stream in Connectal earlier this year, uh, the without dogma um, popped up for me pretty readily. It's something that I've, I've been thinking about um, for quite a long time. And it's interesting that the uh, stream of thinking around holacracy uh, as being almost feels like it was the gateway drug for a few of us into this way of working, but then realizing that it actually didn't give us everything that we needed and could potentially be quite, um, I don't know, addictive and uh, potentially limiting in some ways. But even yesterday I was putting together uh, a proposal and looking at what I was um, articulating and just in this conversation now, I was, it was coming up for me that maybe even my approach that I've been kind of riffing on and refining over the last couple of years has the potential of becoming quite fixed and losing what I think is the huge opportunity in, for all of us that are interested in what could be next is the element of and the beauty of emergence and sort of taking ourselves away from at least for me uh, you know formally held assumption that there should be a playbook or a way or a framework that if we follow every step um, then we'll get to this you know beautiful outcome i uh, just maybe for our next little round have a have a conversation about um has that shifted for you? What does that look like in your work? And how do you balance, I guess, the idea that emergence is really hard to sell with this deep knowing that uh, autonomy, agency, connectedness um, in organizations has the possibility of emancipating more, more potential than we've ever known possible? Who'd like to start? I'll bite. Uh, something I've learned from from my team of consulting uh, at, at, at Google is that um, there's a, a, a relationship between structure and clarity, and what uh, Google's research calls dependability, which is basically how well does a team know each other. 
So if a team uh, really understands each other and how they work and they informally can, can get things done, having more structure and clarity just gets in the way. It creates basically bureaucracy for the team. Whereas if the team doesn't know each other very well, then um, and doesn't have a sense for, for, for just uh, innate natural sense of teamwork, then having the formality, the structure and the clarity seems to be necessary to be really effective. So they're, they're, it's, there are two different ways to get to have being, having an effective team, but they, uh, they, they certainly uh, can, get, can bump into each other uh, in that space. I think we've been trying to find that the happy medium between both of those those points. So we've been really focusing on the bring the whole self to work. We've used one page profiles where people share what people like and admire about each other, what matters to each other, what good support looks like for each of us at work and use tactical meetings and the governance meeting structure. But even in the way that we use tactical meetings from Holacracy, we have a minute of mindfulness. We do more personal sharing than is, is typically explored in Holacracy. But I must say the tactical meetings has made such a big difference to our ability to ask for what we need. But we've also paired that with compassionate communication or non-violent communication. So we're learning strategies to sense into what we need and to be able to articulate it and, and to ask it. So we've been exploring how we go really deeply in knowing each other as individuals, but also I'm finding the structure particularly around the tactical meetings, enormously helpful to enable us to ask for what we need. Helen, I think, it, I think that it's, uh, it's easier potentially to do that when you're building brand new teams. Um, Doug, I'd love to hear your take on bringing this into already existing teams or even in some of the, your experiences I know that you've had with um, helping teams to reorient themselves and this, uh, yeah, this intersection between having the the structures i guess or the guardrails um, to be able to do this well and this different way of approaching i guess accountability and commitment to one another yeah it's um uh, you know i i would say i've never tried to sell emergence um, but what does seem to sell is simplicity and um, breaking down uh, barriers and, and structures that get in the way of effectiveness and uh, enabling the voices of individuals in the ecosystem, that seems to have resonance with decision makers. Um, so uh, for me, it's very much about um, just relying on, on simple you know, principles. Uh, not not necessarily rules, but principles of human interaction and getting down to the the root principles, and letting those kind of be the uh, the guardrails, and then within those guardrails, um, let people uh, you know unleash their their hidden superpowers and you know unleash their voices, uh, ask fundamental questions like you know can we create ecosystems where women no longer have to lean in because they're already in. Uh, can we create ecosystems where uh, everyone can be an innovator and everyone can be a leader to the degree they want to be, um, where people are free to thrive and do their best work? And I think it has a lot to do with just uh, unleashing, you know, unlocking the voices of individuals by creating you know, simple uh, principle-centered environments where they're free to do that. And it's really based on free will. Everyone uh, operates uh, in a system of free will. Everyone's deciding minute to minute, day to day, um, how engaged to be, uh, what to prioritize, who to talk to, what to do next, how hard to work. Um, all those things are exercises of free will. And so just recognizing the reality of that um, uh, simple fact and, and then allowing people to be themselves and and bring their entire selves to work. Uh, it's interesting that you're, you're very deliberately, I think, using the word ecosystem as opposed to system. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, I, I, I love to talk about um, principles that derive from the natural world and the physical world. I think we can learn a lot about organizations by studying nature. 
um, there's a there's there, there's a software company called Waggle. It's based on Waggle Dance of the Honeybee, you know, where people kind of share information with each other um, uh, through kind of unstructured, um, you know, communication. And so there are lots of lessons we can derive uh, from nature. I often use the the analogy of a fern. You know, ferns based on two simple bent lines, but those are, are fractals. They occur at every degree of magnification throughout an entire fern, and that's very much like the environment of a self-managed organization, uh, because management exists everywhere in a self-managed organization. Everyone's a manager. You know, management is planning, organizing, controlling, selecting, coordinating. Everybody's doing that to some degree. And then if you have simple principles embedded throughout an organization, that's also very much like a fractal. And so um, we can learn a lot from nature and uh, we can apply lessons and they're, they're powerful lessons. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I see um, time and time again, the idea that uh, swapping out one system for the other, uh, still based on the mechanistic Tayloristic paradigm of the organization as a machine is not going to take us to whatever comes next. Um, Lisa, I know that you, uh, I really appreciate your work because you seem to be uncovering uh, organizations and humans that are exploring new ways of working um, in parts of the world that maybe um, some of us might not be thinking about. I'd love for, I'd love to hear the, the story of beetroot. That was one of my favorite um, uh, discoveries of yours over the last little while. Yeah, Beetroot um, are this amazing uh, organization uh, in the Ukraine. Um, they have a number of offices in different locations now, and they also have a, an academy. Um, so they are part of their mission is to help grow a new middle class in the Ukraine and to, to really sort of um, support people get into the IT sector there. Um, so these two Swedes founded the company um, and from the beginning they've just had this real commitment to purpose and culture. Um, so when you go and visit their office, you know, uh, from the moment you arrive, you're given a pair of slippers, so they want it to feel like a home. Um, and everyone there is so uh, sort of friendly uh, and, and caring for each other. So the work that they're doing, they're sort of growing so incredibly quickly um, in a sort of naturally self-managing way. Again, I think a lot of these startups and, and new companies emerging are very much wanting to move away from the hierarchical, bureaucratic, top-down way of working. Um, and I see kind of an interesting pattern that a lot of these companies therefore end up in, they kind of, they're quite good at the culture piece. Like they, they have this natural um, desire to contribute to each other and to care about each other and to be innovative and to be more um, flat in terms of how they work together. But often the interesting piece that's missing is this accountability piece. And so you hear these tensions emerging all the time um, where people tell me like, you know, um, everything is great when things are going well, but when, you know, deadlines are missed or when someone's consistently breaking promises, how do we deal with that? I don't know how to have a conversation with that person without going back to that old paradigm that we so want to avoid. Um, and I think that's where um, I really admire Doug's work and the, and the work around principles and the work around commitments and making and, and keeping commitments together. Um, because I think that that piece is so important that, that self-management isn't like a free for all. It's not everyone gets to do whatever they want, um, that we have to sort of negotiate these uh, agreements together in order for it to work, which I think is different from an, a traditional organization where those things are sort of implicit and already baked into the organization. Um, so, so Beetroot is, that's one of the things they're, they're struggling with and they're starting to invest now in how can we, um, one thing they're looking at is their feedback culture and how can we see feedback uh, as something that is really about contributing to each other rather than stepping on each other's toes or, you know, trying to control or correct each other. Because without feedback, I think they're going to really struggle as, as they're all kind of working around the country and, um, and sort of growing these new arms of the company. Um, they really need a balance of this, what Amy Emerson calls psychological safety and accountability, they're sort of two together. Um, so yeah, it would be really interesting to see what they, uh, how they develop. 
Mm. It is. It is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I think that intellectually, the idea of um, saying, I'm Susan, this is what I'm accountable for. This is how I want you to hold me to account um, is super attractive. But in practice, my ability to look at my friend Lisa, who I who I adore, when you say, I want you to hold me to account this way, and you, you miss a target or you miss a deadline, like it's on me to actually uh, be able to hold that accountability. And that's where I see uh, the difficulty, because when you're creating the conditions where you're um, being able to bring your whole self to work and really uh, getting into a position of trust and even love with the people that you work with, being able to hold them to account can potentially become more difficult. And I know, Helen, in your work, that's um, especially uh, fraught. It is. We really struggled with this uh, as a team um, because we were very much in, in HSA. We were green, um, to use our loose terms. We loved each other and all the things that Lisa's just described was, was how we were with each other. And where it became difficult was, was when we had to call each other to account. And as the CEO, I felt like mum. So I was the person that was always vigilant to what was going on and always responsible for holding people to account. And the shift to, to doing that through having really clear roles and team agreements and the expectation that we did that for each other um, was massive and so hard. Um, and I, I know that, you know, there's the lots of examples of the leader of the organization um, shaping the culture. And I am somebody who personally found it difficult to give people feedback. So I was part of creating that environment where we all struggled. And it was through, you know, learning about compassionate communication or nonviolent communication that we had a new language and a new way of having difficult conversations. And I still think that the structure of the meetings where the expectation is we sense tensions and raise them creates a format where it's much where there's a weekly ritual where we are intentionally thinking is there anything that i need to raise with people that i've not been able to raise so far and is this the environment um, to do it in so personally it's been a big change for me around how i show up and give people feedback and how we support each other to do that i'm super interested that you use the word ritual brian i'm, I'm interesting and in how 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 is that done at google um it, you know, you're held up as the poster child for the, for the big organization that really pays attention to this stuff. But how do you how do you hold um, and keep uh, individual accountabilities um, as teams rather than in sort of the traditional one-on-one, um, -on -one, one one worker, one manager paradigm? Uh, we actually use one-on-ones quite extensively. Uh, I, I when we're you know when it's not vacation season like it is right now. Uh, I, I have a weekly one-on-one -on -one with my manager and I, I you know, just kind of, we, we, we just touch base. It might only last 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but it's, it's, it's an opportunity for me to say, uh, I'm having a problem in this area. Can you help me? And, and, and we can, we, we can focus on that or uh, he can uh, uh, communicate some, some uh, pass down information from, from higher up. Um, but so, so that that is that is a core element of of our culture is is this these these uh, maybe not weekly but at least routine touch points between between uh, manager and and team member. Um, the the rest of it is um, uh, as far as accountability, um, at least in the engineering side of the house, uh, agile is, is is very prevalent. So there's a lot of teams that that that, that say I'm, you know or. or uh, I'm, I'm going to work on these stories and, uh, and I have a one week or two week or three week sprint to get to them. And I'm, I'm going to, uh, every day I'm going to, I'm going to say what, what, uh, how things are going and uh, what, what, I've, what I've accomplished and what I haven't. And then at the end of the, uh, of the sprint, uh, uh, what, what do we need to do differently next time? And, and, and just you know, iterate over that. That, that. that really works in a, in, a, in a company as technical as Google. On the, in the non-technical parts of the house, um, it's it's a little uh, less it's a, it's a little more amorphous. There, there's not as much structure in the, in that space. So it, it depends very much on the the relationships and 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 uh, uh, but there's still it, it's still in the context of a uh, of a the engineering technical culture does kind of overshadow the rest of it. And, and so there is a uh, a general sense that that this is how uh, uh, a reasonable way to get things done. Does that make sense? It does. And um, Doug, I guess from your perspective, you work with uh, 
probably larger organizations on balance. Uh, do you see there being a uh, kind of a, a line between the more technical uh, uh, organizations that you work with and the quote unquote, uh, nah, I'm not going to use the word softer, but, but less technical organizations when it comes to um, reorganizing and reorienting how we keep and make commitments? Um, not, not so much in terms of how I'm making and keeping commitments. Um, I, I would preface by saying that it's fascinating to me that some uh, large technical organizations uh, seem to be more deeply rooted in um, uh, 19th century command and control hierarchy than, than some um, for example, manufacturing organizations or other types of organizations. Um, that's always a source of fascination. But in terms of commitment making and commitment keeping, um, I would say that um, that that's sort of random. Uh, depends on the organization and, and the culture and the size and lots of different things. Um, I, it's uh, great that there is more recognition today, I think, about the structure and life cycle of effective commitment making and commitment keeping. Um, I know that Fred Kaufman at LinkedIn just did a great video where he had a coaching conversation about how to hold someone accountable. Um, and it's probably easily uh, searchable on Google. And uh, it's basically not so much about um, pointing out through feedback what someone did wrong and what the consequences were for the organization, it's about holding a mirror up to the person's own integrity in which they made a commitment and put their personal integrity on the line and made a promise and then failed to keep it. Um, and it's not about what the person did to hurt the organization, it's how the person is hurting themselves in terms of uh, their own personal integrity. Uh, it's very much rooted in the theories of Fernando Flores, who is kind of the godfather of artificial intelligence and um, basically showed us how commitments are made and kept and what structure is. So on that basis, just for the, the entire panel, if we, could, if we could think about if, if we are mooting that there's no one way to, to do self-management, there's no one way to either create an organization that has, uh, operates under these principles nor is there one way to transform an organization who maybe wants to be more participatory. What do we think the basic kind of core principles or protocols or elements might be? Because I can imagine that the people uh, listening and I'm watching the back channel as well, uh, would be curious to know sort of, because we're the practitioners out there helping organizations do that internally or uh, in the world, what, what, what might those elements be? Uh, I can start. Um, something that comes to mind for me is like a, is like a sh is a shift from responsibility being uh, you know in in one person or or a, a privileged few's laps uh, and instead being distributed. Um, and, the, and you know another way to put it is like moving from this kind of parent-child paradigm to a more adult-adult paradigm. So. Uh, when, um, when at Tough Leadership Training, we're working with teams, for example, we'll do this process that we call cooperation coaching. And part of that is sort of training the team in becoming responsible for creating their own working climate. So sort of having them describe how it is currently um, and, and how they would like it to be. And then having them sort of confront the gap uh, and therefore create some agreements about, okay, if this is how we want to be as a team, then what? do we need to do to kind of move it towards that? Um, so yeah, when I'm talking about kind of human skills, this is one of the human skills. It's like, how do we, so many of us have been conditioned in the world of work to be sort of um, passive or uh, compliant. Um, and so instead, how, how do we sort of take responsibility, become like the authors of our own uh, life, our own experience? Um, so that for me is like a key theme, moving from this parent-child dynamic to more of an adult-to-adult -adult one. And how can everyone be kind of co-responsible and co-leaders of the organization and the culture? 
I think it has to hook back to purpose and values as well. So what are the values that are underpinning the work that we want to do? Why are we here and what's the purpose? And then what can we do together to deliver our purpose, which brings us into roles and what we can hold each other to account for. And as Lisa says, you know, how do we want to work together? What agreements do we want to make about how we deliver on our purpose and live our values? And so that's really interesting. So I just want to interrupt here. So if I think about what you're doing, Helen, with well-being teams, purpose and values feels absolutely right. And I can understand that. And I, you know, I, I can, I can sink into that feeling. But then when I think of Google and purpose and values, I get a little stuck. What do you think, uh, Brian? That, that's actually a, a, a core theme in, in our team dev consulting work. We, we very often, uh, so if, if, you, if you do a Google search on Project Aristotle at Google, uh, and it'll, uh, you'll find some links to take you to rework.withgoogle.com. And where, we, where we've, we've published some of our research on what makes for effective teams. And what we found was that a, there's a strong correlation between having a sense of shared purpose and, a, and, and that team working well together and, and being effective for some, for some uh, value of, of, of what effective means, for some definition of that. Um, and so um, we, we, we have a, a library of, of team dev activities, and, uh, several of which are all uh, aimed at helping the team uh, articulate their shared values and how does that inform the team's purpose and how does that then inform the mission and the strategy that the team uses to implement that purpose. Uh, so that's, that, that's uh, uh, we, we spend a lot of time or put a lot of energy in, into helping teams uh, illuminate that space. And that's, that's, that's rather core to, to, to building effective teams. Thanks for that, that uh, that's helpful. Um, so Doug, if we're looking at um, adult to adult relationships, understanding our mutual values and purpose, what would be next for you? I know, yeah, what would be next for you? Yeah, so um, voluntary association with others in, in self-organizing teams, uh, dynamic teams which can uh, form around a common purpose uh, that's agreed upon and clear and dissipate uh, when there's no longer a need to, to remain as a team. So it's uh, very much about the, the voluntary nature of self-organization and people forming together dynamically as needed and dissipating when, when no longer needed. Um, Self-organization, uh, you know, you can concoct teams uh, as a leader or manager and, and decide uh, that certain people are going to work together uh, or not. Um, but uh, I found that self-organizing teams seem to be uh, very highly effective because they are coming together on a voluntary basis. They're making agreements with each other, social contracts, they're deciding how they want to work together. Uh, what behaviors uh, they expect from each other, um, what expectations they have in terms of delivering uh, results to each other. And those seem to be really highly effective. And so those are the kinds of teams that I work with and help support. Doug, you hit on a, on a, I'm sorry. Um, Doug, you hit on a core theme of, of, of what I see going on in, in, in the, the world of organizational design, which, you know, the, the design element uh, kind of frustrates me, but um, we're, 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 Google had something uh, more than uh, 800 uh, reorganizations in, in 2017, and that was that, that could have been as minor as one team moving from one director to, an, to another director, or from a VP to a VP, or it could have been a completely restructuring of, of, of the, the management structure of these teams, or merging of teams, or divesting of, or splitting of teams. All of that qualifies as a reorganization, and we're 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 stuck in this model of we have to we, we design it and it's static and it's supposed to work for a while. It's supposed to turn out value uh, in whatever space we're in, and then we have to modify the machine and then modify the machine and modify the machine. And we need to start thinking about how do we do this so that it's not uh, uh, discrete 
changes from fixed state to fixed state, but it, it, it's a fluid flow from, from one state to the next. And, and, and sure, you take snapshots of it and say, yeah, uh, last week, this is what the organization looked like. But two hours later, you know, it's going to be different. And, and so we need to get our minds around that and, and figure out what kind of uh, structures or environment do we need to build to support that kind of fluidity. Okay, I'm off my flipbook now. <laughs> No, it's it's super interesting, Brian, and and uh, you know I think about this a lot. That um, the one thing that's consistent, whether in anything, is change, and the idea that that the organization or the organism is going to look different depending on the group of people that are um, um, organized around a particular problem or project, and what they're doing, and even what they had for breakfast that morning, right? So how do we? Um, create the scaffolding to be able to keep us safe, which is another word that I'm curious about these days, um, while allowing us to uh, kind of feel into what it is like to move from parent-child to adult relationships. And this, uh, in the back channel, this seems to be a theme, is one is around how do we, how do we unlearn the things that have been, that we've been indoctrinated indoctrinated in since our very first day at school about um, hierarchy and power authority and what does adult to adult actually mean so I'd love for us to explore that 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 idea is in organizations where there still are explicit or implicit hierarchies because I, I love what our friend Francesca pick says is that organization without hierarchy is bullshit. There's no such thing. Um, how do we understand for each other what adult to adult relationships are? I love what you said earlier, Doug, that every single day we use our free will to organize ourselves and our lives. But then why all of a sudden when we get to the workplace is the assumption that we need to be told what to do? Oh, that feels such a challenge, Susan. It is it's so deeply ingrained from school, this notion of authority and being told what to do. So right from the beginning of our childhood, that's how our world is. So both in terms of being family with parents and in school, and then in university, it continues, but to a different degree if people go to university and if they go into their first work experience, there it is. So to intentionally step out of that, and say we want to create a different way of being together is in some ways the most countercultural thing that we can do, which is why I have benefited from having some tools and processes to make that easier. And I think that's helped me make the first steps towards that. So I'm really interested in the balance and, and Lisa was bringing this up as well about the balance of structure and tools and behaviors and how we get the right fit and mix of those where we can balance freedom and the structure to be accountable to each other. Yeah, go Lisa. No, I just, um, I was just really curious to know from Helen, just one or two of, of those tools or practices that have helped you uh, kind of embody that more adult to adult paradigm. There are three actually. Um, one is um, the Holacracy Tactical Meeting, where instead of just having long agenda items, the responsibilities you show up and ask for what you need. And when our, our team first started learning about that, it almost felt quite brutal to say what you need as opposed to the long waffle that we would often do to introduce an agenda item. So to say what do you need without the background. So that was a, a hard but really good practice. Again, you know, I've mentioned nonviolent communication, that's been enormously um, helpful and practicing that and practicing and practicing that. And I still are, I mean, conscious incompetence around that. I've still got a lot to do. Um, and then doing an immunity to change map helped me personally to focus on what it is about me that made giving feedback um, so difficult or, or, or challenging and where that had come from and what I can do to practice. So the notion of what experiments can I do to keep practicing and um, practicing how to do that without it feeling like a disaster and a loss of the internal messages that I had about why giving feedback is a dangerous thing to do. So, so I think it's, it's, this is about personal growth and spiritual growth as much as practices and it, it's how much we can how and when we can introduce that. And I think that's the emergent stuff that uh, Doug and Brian were talking about too. Mm. 
I love that, Helen. It's uh, really leaning into the question um, in the back channel from Mika and others around. So it's one thing to learn new ways of, of being and working, but it's another thing to unlearn and actively take, a, take an active um, stance with your own personal development around this stuff. So I love that idea. And I'd just love to ask Doug, Lisa, and Brian, like, what are your strategies for unlearning crap that no longer serves you? <laughs> uh, I would say that is uh, simply uh, delineating the expectations of uh, an effective self-manager in the, in the workplace. And it really has to do with understanding the characteristics of um, good self-manager and, and those have to do with, um, you know, taking initiative, uh, having uh, grit and perseverance, um, not being subject to, you know, power distance sensitivity and, and being overly reticent to address things. Uh, it involves curiosity, which is a, a linchpin of uh, continuous improvement. It involves humility. Um, so it involves a contribution mindset, which is, you know, Drucker's concept, but it really means generosity uh, and, and, you know, caring and, and giving and, and uh, helping others, coaching and mentoring. Mentoring has a lot to do with ethics and ethical leadership. So just understanding the characteristics and, and here, here they are. And, um, you know, which ones do you have? Which ones do you need to work on uh, to be better? Um, and where are you at and how can we help you on the journey? Um, to me, that's what it's about. So Lisa, what do you think and how are you going about your unlearning of the stuff that no longer serves you? Um, well, a, f a sort of framework that I've used and find really helpful is um, one called Core Quality Quadrants by a guy called Daniel Offman. And the principle is that we all have kind of core qualities and things that we've been recognized for our whole lives and that we kind of value and as part of our identity and self-worth. But when we overplay it, it becomes our pitfall. Um, so for me, one of my core qualities is that I'm empathetic uh, and that has lots of benefits. But when I overplay it, the feedback that I've got from my colleagues and what I'm realizing about myself is I have a tendency to become cautious and overly polite um, and then I move away from like the kind of cost of that is, you know, I move away from what Doug was talking about there with the contribution mindset and I won't speak up and, I'm, and others are kind of missing out on uh, contributions that I could make because I'm too worried about uh, what other people might think. So then the sort of third quadrant is, is a challenge. So picking something that is a compliment, like would complement your core quality but that would challenge it and how I and similar to Helen how I can practice that so for me it's like speaking up more um, and I have colleagues who very affectionately help me do that and we joke about it sometimes if I say I need something and they'll be like oh you're asking for that thing really wow you're taking up that much space um, but it really helps me to sort of practice that and to sort of build that muscle up um, so frameworks like that help and I think if you can enroll your friends, colleagues, family, whoever, to help you and kind of help catch you when you're in that pitfall um, and give you feedback when you're out of it, you know, really helps. I love that. Thanks, Lisa. Welcome, uh, Gary and Paul to the fishbowl. Um, Gary, I'd love, I'd love to, for you to introduce yourself. And uh, I think that this particular um, uh, conversation is really uh, relevant to what you've been posting in the back channel around uh, fear and positions of power and feedback and how do we unlearn and make ourselves available and vulnerable enough to maybe be the change agents in our big companies. Yeah, sure. Hi, good evening. Really good chat so far. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, th I, th I think one of my big passions, you touched on it um, already, Susan, was around vulnerability and I'm quite new to this self-management space, but I was interested particularly for you, Lisa, What's your experience of vulnerability? You know, how much is the emotional side of self-management? Is that a critical part? Is it something that can get in the way if it's not present? I'm just really interested because I sense discussions around emotion and vulnerability, self-awareness is such a big theme. And I'm just wondering how important the truly human aspect is of self-management. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I'm my, I can only speak for myself, but my personal sense is that it's really key because when you're in a self-managing team or organization, there's, you know, there's no HR department or manager who can be, who you can go and complain to, or, you know, hand over the responsibility to of resolving a conflict or, you know, firing someone, for example. Um, so when you're working in a self-managing way with colleagues, I think this stuff that, you know, you could refer to it as like under the surface stuff about dynamics going on between people in the team or someone's way of being, you know, someone might be doing a great job, but they might have a way of being that in meetings is just always sort of creating a bit of tension um, or kind of issues that happened in the past that were never quite resolved or cleaned up. All of these things, you know, are sort of small grains, but the longer that we don't address them, they become more and more, you know, um, create more and more friction. So I think, uh, in, in teams, in self-managing context, being able to transform conflicts, for example, is really key and being able to talk about those things and kind of constantly keep bringing those things up and on, you know, putting them on the table, like, okay, now this is going on, not in a judgmental way, but just in terms of like, what, you know, what's workable in terms of workability, like, so I think it's really key. Right. Um, I also want to welcome Paul Walker, who um, has the practical sort of hands-on experience that we've all read about over these many years of Holacracy at Zappos. And I think that the, there's a really nice segue from this um, question of vulnerability and uh, being yourself and feed, having a feedback culture has been, that has been one of the biggest uh, critiques of Holacracy, that Holacracy is so... Um, functional and and dogmatic that it doesn't leave room for that human element and paul i just wondered if you maybe wanted to speak directly to that point and how zappos has managed to i guess potentially even subvert um that within the holacracy um dogma uh yeah absolutely and thanks for having me um i i think it's been a kind of a, a mix of different things uh Overall, the way that it's kind of done now is uh, we, we kind of sometimes joke that it's very different from how it originally was rolled out with Holacracy. Um, and every what we experienced over the years and what every company I've ever talked to that uses Holacracy, they all run into the exact same problems. And most of them come from the, uh, come from the idea that with Holacracy, there's all these rules, processes, guidelines. And anytime it's talked about, it's always from a very idealistic standpoint of this is how perfectly all of this could work if everyone's doing this perfectly. But I've never actually seen a company where everyone is doing it perfectly. And so none of that stuff really works. It comes into play. The message is always like, oh, well, this will make sense once you start doing it um, and, and kind of get into that. And I think one of the so kind of the stuff we've done, and some of this goes to what Doug and some others have been saying is uh, a huge piece is simplicity. One of the biggest issues with holacracy is it's very, very complicated. And there is a lot of thought and what a lot of conversations were on the side is that when it comes to the idea of unlearning versus learning new things, especially with this complex thing. And where most of the success we, has, we have found is uh, essentially kind of thinking about the idea that nobody has to learn or unlearn anything. Unlearning something is usually never very good because knowledge is always good regardless of where that came from. And learning something new, everybody already knows how to be an adult, how to do their own work, how to manage themselves. Every adult does it in their personal lives all the time when it comes to paying bills and driving a car. And so the aspect is really to get people on board it's really taking the responsibility on ourselves of showing them the value and understanding it well enough that we can explain it simply enough for them to actually understand. Yeah, super, super interesting. And I, where, where, I mean, I guess I feel like you didn't quite answer my question and where does the, where does the humanness come in um, to the holacracy machine at Zappos? Sorry about that for not answering that more properly. Um, uh, the humanness, I think the, the focus needs to be that holacracy and self-management in general is essentially less important than the people. And a lot of times that's where a mistake is made of like, you have to make sure the structure right, you have to learn this. 
And there's even usually unintentionally, there's so much focus on understanding this new language, following these new rules that we put culture and, uh, and personal relationships and all this on the side burner. Cause normally we'd say, Hey, normally I would just walk up and talk to you about something, but now I have to say, okay, if I need to talk to her, let me pull out the constitution. Let me go to 4.3.7 to figure out which role I have to engage. And, uh, and over the years, that's been a thing we've seen often where people will be like, well, what do I do if I just want to talk to this person? Thinking they have to go through some process. And for a long time, we, it was kind of like that. We'd say, oh, we have to do A, then B, then C. Uh, and eventually realizing that those things are the things that do cause a lot of confrontation with the culture and the, and the people side of things. And so the best fix is clear out, just flat out, straightly telling people the people, the culture, the relationships is more important. One, if you just go talk to somebody, nobody's ever going to say, oh, well, that's not with the rules of holacracy. If you have any degree of good relationship, that will be fine. Uh, and, and two, we tell people when training, if there ever does come a decision where you either have to do what's right for our culture and just to be a good person or following the rules, forget the rules, break the system, just follow the culture and our core values. And, and, and that will never lead to a bad situation. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for that. Uh, and it is, it is funny what you were saying, even in your, the previous response, where if you're just more perfect, if you're just doing it more perfect, if everybody is perfect at doing this, something, it will work and the beautiful thing will emerge. It's just, uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive to um, self-organizing and to the organization as a, as an ecosystem or something, uh, a, a living system rather than a machine. So that's really, really fascinating. Um, I think we probably have time for one more round or one more question. And I'd love to go to Francois' question about, we've been talking a lot about how we do self-management and self-organization in teams. What about for the whole organization? How, how do we actually, and is it possible um, to scale sort of that Dunbar's number of the perfect team of six to 12 throughout the whole, whole, whole organization. And then maybe loop it in with um, Mika's um, noticing that I also feel really strongly that uh, ha ha somehow um, accepting and utilizing our independence and our self-efficacy um, to something that's more interdependent is sort of the natural step for us as humans. Um, so those two pieces, how do we do it at scale in the organization? And how do we uh, activate our independence in a way that moves us towards um, a healthy level of interdependence? What do you think, Gary? Cool, big question. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure I feel particularly qualified, to be honest, Susan. <laughs> uh, who wants to give it a go? I'll give it a go. Uh. Um, being in a rather large organization, I've, I've, I've given quite a bit of thought to how do we do this at scale? And the only thing I came up with is it's, it's, too, it's too intrusive um, to, say, to do it by fiat. So to, to, even if... Uh, if um, Sundar was the ratifying authority and having all of Google uh, follow their holacracy, that is that is basically laying down the law. So holacracy by fiat uh, it just does not resonate with me. Um, at the same time, um, I see that uh, teams at different stages in their development, or, and if, if we're in a fluid environment, then that, that that will be uh, that'll be uh, will always be changing rapidly. But teams will recognize will recognize uh, how much structure they need, and they can opt into practicing holacracy if they want that structure, or they could or, or they can adopt pieces of it or or modify components of it. And and I I, I see holacracy as being you, you can do it in a modular structure, and and, and you can uh, you, you don't you can fine tune some of those components, and in um, let, let the team decide uh, maybe at the director level or at the senior manager level uh, how much, well, okay, that's not self-management if we're doing it through directors and senior managers, but at some level of scope, 
let, let, the, let the team decide how much structure they need. And that will give them a sense to give them self-efficacy and it will uh, help them choose the, the amount of structure that is best, that best fits their culture. So Google culture is not uniform. It, it, it's quite, it's, it's quite messy actually. Thanks, Paul, you uh, had, had, a, had, a, had a view? Uh, yeah, because this was something that I mean, I think most companies uh, run into and, and we did as well is a lot of times if one part of the company uh, or one department figures out a way that works for them, the, the instinct is usually like, oh, well, we finally we figured out the recipes for success. Let's make everyone else do this as well. And that runs into a ton of problems. And again, where we're seeing a lot of success is as long as you have a good enough background structure to support things letting every team willingly do things radically different from one another as long as it's not causing problems for other parts of the company that's actually been a hugely successful piece so not only will the people on the teams uh, is, is group a going to work very differently from group b just on the personality aspect uh, but you can't expect that some buyers in your merchandising department and your software engineers are going to benefit from the same things and work in the same ways and work from home or in the office on, on the same times. Uh, and, and so actually not trying to make every team work in the same way and just use the very most basic possible similarities and then otherwise operate independently is, has been pretty successful. Hmm. I can see that at an organization like Zappos, but uh, I'd love, Doug, for you to just uh, talk about what you saw at Morningstar. And, uh, you know, I, I, from, from from what I can understand from the various times I've heard the story, is that it it, it came from an, a the big organizational um, impetus, and then things as as things matured, it got down to the team level. You muted, Doug. Thank you, Susan. Um, yeah, becoming a self-managed organization took literally three hours. So we were a, a, an entire company of 24 people at that time. And then, uh, you know, built a factory, another factory, another factory. Now it's 5,000 uh, people, mostly seasonal people, but um, 5,000 or so people and completely self-managed and, you know, based on the same principles as we started with. And so it's scaled. Um, I think the success of scaling had a lot to do with the simplicity of the principles involved and embedding those deeply in the culture. Um, and by definition, it kind of uh, um, revolved around teams because you talked about the Dunbar uh, limit uh, number earlier. And so we have lots of uh, uh, colleagues who are voluntarily connected with each other by agreement, um, uh, usually in, um, groups of eight, nine, ten, something like that, uh, that makes sense, it's rational, people can hold those cognitive relationships in their head and uh, manage those complexities uh, very well and they're dynamic so people can renegotiate these agreements and, and relationships as needed uh, continuously. And, uh, and yet if you look at the entire network, if you were to project uh, the entire network uh, in space and look at a diagram, it would look like a giant network, one, one giant spider web. So in one sense, it's a team of, you know, 5,000 people uh, or 500 people, depending on the time of year. And in another sense, it's a number of teams of teams that are all interconnected with each other of, you know, eight, nine or 10 people. And so uh, kind of the dynamic fluidity of that works very well. Uh, and it allowed the company to scale from zero to become, you know, the largest in its industry. Uh, the other example I love a lot is the Hire Group. Um, not everyone's heard of it, but Hire Group is the world's largest appliance maker based in Qingdao, China. And uh, their visionary leader, Zhang Ramin, took 70,000 global employees and created 4,000 self-managed teams. And these teams, for the most part, are interdisciplinary. So they have marketing and sales and production and quality and distribution and all the rest. And every single person on those teams is free to become an innovator and a leader. So if they identify some product, product or service idea, they can apply for funding. 
if they create a success, they can spin it off into an entirely new company. And they've created a couple of unicorns already. So this is like uh, an example of scale, the likes of which the world has never seen before. Uh, and it's all around self-management and, and the visionary leader's uh, view of the future. So this is quite possible. Uh, it's happening as we speak. And uh, there's going to be a lot of exciting models that we'll have to, have to look at and observe uh, for future years. Great. And that's a, I think that's a delightful um hopeful story to end on, Doug. I, I really, really appreciate you bringing that in at the end because uh, I think that what we've seen over the course of the conversation is whether it's two people or tens of thousands uh, with intentionality, um, we can create something different. We have, we're humans with free will and the um, ability to, uh, to do whatever we want to do, um, I guess within reason. Um, so with that, I'd just like to warmly thank all of the panelists, um, uh, Gary, Paul, for joining the fishbowl at the end. We've had a marvelous back channel conversation and it's lovely to see um, people from all over the world joining in on this topic. And hopefully I'll be able to convince Mara to um, continue this series and maybe even potentially continue this conversation uh, because I think it's super important and uh, I just really appreciate um, being part of it. So thanks everyone and have a great rest of your day or evening, wherever you are.